Lindsay. They will call you a veteran when you are ten years old. Your performance as two identical sisters will be described as soulful and adept, and the film will earn a hundred million dollars. Are there a hundred million stars when you look up in your twelfth year on the planet, little veteran? Draw a square and count. How about when you look up age three? Three-year-old Ford model, signed and contracted. Are there a hundred million bubbles in the soda as it spills? A hundred different colours in the photographer's eyes? A million O's in the bowl? Are there a hundred million hearts stuffed within your father's shirt? And if there are, how many of them love you? The woman who plays your mother knows a thing or two. You're practically fully grown now, ripe for plucking, and she waltzes through that vineyard world of pluckers like she hasn't got two single fucks to give. She makes you laugh. She's a joker. The two of you switch bodies. Imagine, as you're studying her vocal patterns, how her body would really feel. Can you fill it up right to the corners, the tips? Split your consciousness and walk around in her tights for a bit. Feel the background chainsaw buzz ebb away to nothing. Isn't that nice? Does it remind you of being two? Can anything remind you of being two? Can any portal transport you back to those days of comforters before the photographer's eyes aimed themselves at you? No, you need another body for that. It's hardly surprising, really, when the world decides that it's done with you. Perhaps the world has a maximum capacity for love. At some point, we're just too tired to be kind. At some point, we're sick to fucking death of you. At some point, we require you to plunge headfirst into your nosedive. At its terminus, we will finally be able to reassess you, perhaps even to love you again, to appreciate the things we once appreciated in you, to see the child we have ceased to be able to see, to stop masturbating to pictures of you, to stop taking pictures of you over your garden wall, to stop writing articles about your failings, to stop reading articles about your failings, to stop wanting to know about your failings, to stop enjoying your failings to stop enjoying your losses, to stop enjoying your destruction. Because at that point, your destruction will have finished. You will be, once more, small, big-eyed and adept forever. And we can all appreciate that. Oh, We are recording, Ooh. you can go whenever you wish. Oh, Mark. it just cricked my neck. I always um, call you Mark Kermode. <laughs> <laughs> you can go whenever you wish, Mark Kermode. Oh, I'm dreaming again. <laughs> I do love Mark Kermode. Have I told you my Mark Kermode story? <laughs> no, tell me your Mark Kermode. Please. I'm going to tell you my Mark Kermode story. Okay, okay. I'm ready. And, I'm ready. Hit uh, me. I think we may be starting the show now. Because okay, sure. Why not? Because, oh, hello and welcome to Two Minute Stories. Hello and welcome to Two Minute Stories. I, uh, I, I just have to tell the, the Mark Kermode. The most professional <laughs> podcast. I know. I, just, I, I simply have to tell the Mark go, Kermode Go, go for it. I'm ready. Uh, I'm ready. Uh, so I was, uh, I was a film reviewer for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and I never, I never really got got fully started because I like I found it hard to get proper paid work coming in reviewing films. Like all the magazines were dying out, and it was, you know, there just there just wasn't the work available. Um, but I did it for like a year or two on and off. I'd I'd go up to Soho and and do cinema reviews. I did a lot of DVD reviews. And one time, I went I went to uh, and I, I went to a couple of big films. But I went the biggest one I went to was Inglorious. Inglorious Bastards. Oh, those those the, fellas, yeah. The Quentin Tarantino one, mm-hmm. and uh, and I went to like the the press conference with with Tarantino and Christoph Waltz, 
and uh, Diane Kruger and some of the other actors like t- like talking to the, to to the press, like forty oh, or fifty fancy. press members. And at the screening, uh, I noticed my hero, mm. the bequiffed one. Mark Kermode, the, be- the bequiffed one, <laughs> the bequiffed one <laughs> sitting. Um, and I've I've been listening to. I mean, <laughs> shut up. I've been listening <laughs> sorry, to. Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. I've been listening. Go ahead. <laughs> Pay attention. It's a good story. I've been listening to, uh, uh, Wittertainment, the Mark Kermode and Simon Mayo podcast. Oh, yeah. For since I was about 22, 23, mm-hmm. since I was working in the video shop, which I referenced in. Episode, a previous episode. In a previous episode, and I would pass off Mark Kermode's film reviews as my own thoughts on the mm. on the films. And so I, I saw him in the audience. I was like, oh, my God, it's Mark Kermode. I've been waiting for my chance to see Mark Kermode. And I was like, oh. And then I, I it was before the film had started, and I went off into the into the toilet. And, uh, and no, I got the story wrong. I hadn't seen him in the audience. I went to the toilet. And as I was going to, there were a bunch of, everyone was kind of going to the bathroom before the film started. And I noticed that at the urinal next to me, I noticed the quiff of Mark Kermode. And I kind of, I kind of went, I gave a little look of, oh, it's Mark Kermode. And he sort of, he sort of saw me doing that yeah. whilst weeing. You're not really supposed to look at another one's quiff while you're doing No, <laughs> that's bad quiff etiquette. Yeah, it's bad it's urinal bad. etiquette. It's bad, yeah. And you know he he he, he saw me seeing him, yeah. and so I looked away as as you do, and that's that's all fine. And then and then I saw him in the cinema, sitting a few rows away from me, and I was every now and then I'd glance away from the film just to watch him for a bit. Yeah, I was like, I'm a big fan of his. Oh, maybe I'll chat to him. One of those fans. One of yeah. those. <laughs> and so I thought, like at the end, I thought I'll I'll say hello and say how you're doing, but I was too shy. I didn't do it. But then about. Six months to a year later, he was on a book tour and he came to Brighton and I went, I went with, uh, with a friend of mine and my, now my ex-partner. We went to go and see him as like a treat for me because I was such a big fan. And afterwards, he did a signing mm-hmm. and people, you know, queue up, buy the book, get him to sign it and maybe exchange a few words with him. And I, was, I had a fit of confidence and I decided I'm going oh, to tell the story. He'll love this. We'll have a joke and <laughs> I'll, I'll befriend one of my heroes and it will go great. So we got to the head of You're the queue. You're still in touch with him then, yeah? No, Take it. We, got, we got to the head of the queue. And so I started, I started in on this story about, you know, I said, you know, we've met once before when I say met and I told him this whole story and he sort of looked up at me from his seat behind this little table with this stack of books with this increasingly worried and uncomfortable face and I realised as I was telling this story that it was basically a story about how I'd seen his penis <laughs> and, 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 and watched him. With, I mean, I, I didn't, but I could see how he would take that from the story. And, and uh, it didn't go well. Uh, he, he, sort of, he put up with it, bless him. And he, he gave a sort of, you know, uncomfortable, uh, right, thank you for that uh. response. And then he signed my book. And then my, my friend Mike, the little bastard, uh. he, was, he was all shy and friendly and he kind of he he said, oh, you know, I, I know you're a big fan of um, oh, what's the film? Phantasm, Fan, Fanta- the Phantasm films. But mm. I, I wrote my I wrote my undergraduate dissertation on Phantasm three or something. And Mark Kermode's a big horror fan, and he was like, oh wow, that's great. What was your view in it? Well, tell me about it. And I, so I just had to stand to the side after completely failing to bond oh, with my no. hero and my stupid shy friend successfully bonded with him, and. Uh, 
And there you go. That's my story about oh, Mark Herman's penis. Mark, if you're listening, uh, <laughs> Chris is really sorry. Sorry. <laughs> sorry for that. And and yeah, um, welcome to Two Minute Stories, Hello. everybody. Uh, we're opening with a story as well. There we go. Oh, God. I feel so much better about all the times I've humiliated myself now as well. God. Well, at least the story has served a purpose. Yeah, well, thank, thank you for that. <laughs> it was worth something. It was worth the humiliation. Oh, God. Bring, bringing of shame to my fathers. <laughs> that was something else. Thank you for that. Yeah, um, you're welcome. <laughs> And um, you just heard a, a real story from me, yeah, lead, leading into which that is, slight which is change of, of pace. But it's it's kind of interesting um, in a mm. seamless segue. <laughs> um, we, we actually talk about uh, real life occurrences are are a common theme in today's show. Yes, they um, are. worryingly so. It, like there there are heartfelt stories, autobiographical stories today, mm. and there are also really disconcerting facts that that really. Troubled me actually, and I'm, I'm, mm. I think they might trouble people as well listening. It's just about yeah. um, the state of 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 espionage and things like that. Yes, which is really something else. So right, like, right. let's not hold anybody in suspense any longer. Who have we got no, well, on the show? Well, that's today? right. For we have, <clears throat> for the first time on Two Minute Stories, we have a crime writer mm-hmm. in the his house. That means in the house. I, um, I took that. Thank you. To <laughs> Well, you gave me a look. <laughs> I think it was an appropriate look. I'll, you just, I'll take it. You just kind of have to get used to that look I, from me. That's fine. Afraid, Chris. I, I think I deserved it. Um, <laughs> so we, we've got we've got Oliver Harris in the house today. Mm. Why am I saying in the house? I got, just, just go with it. We've go got Oliver it. Harris in the house. Yes. Uh, Oliver Harris is the author of three novels featuring London detective Nick Belsey. They are The Hollow Man, Deep Shelter and The House of Fame, all published by Jonathan Cape slash Vintage. Mm-hmm. And his fourth novel, A Shadow Intelligence, we're going to hear an extract from that today. Mm. And that novel is coming out in but four days on the mm. 5th of May. Oh, wow. Okay. Available in all good bookshops. There we go. Hope yeah. so. Uh, and in addition to, to Ollie, we've got uh, Bella Fortune on the show. And Bella is a writer, poet, and performance artist, a former writer in residence for Theatre Bristol. She's performed all over the UK, including at Caroline Duffy and Friends at Manchester's Royal Exchange Theatre, Bristol Festival of Literature, and the WEP Summer Party. And she's going to bring some performance skills to her reading. Mm, yeah, yeah, it's 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 wonderful because uh, I, again, two very different writers, two very different uh, stories, and uh, but both. Just really, I don't know. It's as you'll hear and you'll listen to it. You'll hear us talk about afterwards and and the things that come out of it. It's both unsettling and heartfelt. That, that's the only way I can really describe mm. the, this show. And I'm yeah, unsettling and heartfelt. Unsettlingly heartfelt. Yeah. Unsettlingly heartfelt. Yeah, that was difficult to say. <laughs> unsettlingly heartfelt. Well, unsettling. It, 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 it's really light and shade. We've got. This this episode. I do you think, think? Do you think that's our theme today? Yeah, I um, think that there's a there's a really with, with the crime fiction, as you'd expect, mm. there is a a darker element, and with with um with the with the poetry that we hear, the sort of prose poetry, it's about memory, and it's I don't know if you'd call it lighter, but it's certainly it's 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 human. It's really human. Mm. That's yeah. which is interesting because I think in the extract that we hear from. 
Ollie's novel. Mm-hmm. There's a, uh, as you often get with crime fiction, it's quite there's an inhumanity, there's an alienation going on, mm. which is very different to to the kind of effect that you get from, um, I think from all the poets that we have. One poet is mm. poetry is tends tends to be a lot more human and um, better. Better. <laughs> so I, might, I, might, I might be I might be more biased as a poet, but stuffier you, but, you cocky poet. Well, uh, but this is but that that's of course a joke because yeah. the, as you will see in this extract, the 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 prose is just incredible, and I'm still got chills thinking about it. Um, is Ollie starting us off today? Ollie is starting us off. Okay, shall we? Well, shall we hear from him? No, no, he's not starting us off. Okay, ask me again. Okay, uh, so is Ali starting us off today? No. Oh, so we're starting off with Bella. We're starting off with Bella. Okay. Well, great. I mean, we started off with me, the unforgettable me. Uh, but of course, some things go without saying. I mean, you haven't you even are... you haven't even asked me about why I wrote a story about Lindsay Lohan. Well, uh, why did you write a story about Lindsay Lohan? Uh, well, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm writing. I'm writing a. Uh, it started off as a collection of, of short fiction and has morphed into more like a novel in fragments mm-hmm. uh, about um, the movies and relationships. And one of the strands that I am working on throughout that collection um, is looking at the looking at the lives of actresses mm-hmm. who have been chewed up and spat out mm. by the film industry. And... Uh, I thought that the the experiences of Lindsay Lohan yeah. were emblematic yeah. of some I, modernity. I, and... You kind of get that with the sense of, of rhythm in the piece as well. There is an mm. inevitability. It's almost like a train towards the end, that, mm. that, that which is uh, poetic. Well, I'm very say. talented. That's, well, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's wonderful. Shut up, Chris. No, don't shut up, Chris. Talk, Chris. <laughs> All right. Shut up, weird voice that Chris is doing. <laughs> to, to sound modest. Oh, bless. Stop it. Stop it, you. Um, shall we... Shall, I, I will stop that now, because that's weird. Shall we, shall we, shall I, we I, hear from Bella? Sure, let's, let's, let's cut to Bella. All right. The woods. All good things must come. The future is in thought. The past is carved a response. I once read that we have grey matter in our hearts. A scientist stated it as fact, so it must be. Jean Woods died exactly a month to the day after Douglas with the same surname. The grey matter is identical to the parts of our brains that store memory. We all have it. Jean Woods had been unresponsive for some time. She was informed of her life partner's death. The grey heart matter heard and knew how to act. Dye intended as auburn turns grey hair pink. Tomatoes grow better in the greenhouse. The pond will freeze over every winter. The fish will never die. Tin watering cans for adult hands and plastic for the children. Soft mints in the glass jar. All good things. Douglas never knew his father. Irish, serviceman. Teens met over intricate steps before hips were encouraged to sway. A secret mother posed as sibling. A middle name of Sherlock left behind. No need to trace an invisible line. 
I'm following in footsteps of those I only know as stories. No scientist told me. Even ones I met, touched, saw the final breath, are created from tales carefully chosen. One day, I will be made of flashes, responses, passed down, stored in grey heart matter. All good things must. That that piece that you just read, it's all it just 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 do wonderful things with memory. And and I just think that is it um is memory important to you? Do 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 you write a lot from memory? Yeah, I would be surprised if memory isn't important to any writer, to mm. be honest. Maybe not sci fi writers. Um, <laughs> um so like is that where you so your ideas always come from a, a spark of reality, a spark of real? There's always an element of it. Mm. Um, arrogantly, nearly always autobiographical as well. <laughs> so. I, I noticed something, and I'm, you probably weren't aware of it yourself, but you're you're a you're a performer as yeah. m- as much as a, as a writer as well. Yeah. Um, and I, I was noticing with your left hand, you were sort of beating out the the tune, just almost just very lightly on your fingers. Is that so? Rhythm is a, and I was hearing it in the pauses as well. So, is something rhythm you you work on when you're writing? Is it something you think about? I think it's more intrinsic than that. I don't think it's intentional. Although I can, if if a line jars, if the rhythm's not there, mm. then. Um, I'm aware of it and will alter it. But I started writing before I had any concept of what you're meant to do. I never, I hadn't studied it or anything. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think that's... I, I was a dancer, so I guess maybe that's it. Oh, okay. It's sort of... <laughs> do you ever write about dancing? I have a couple of times, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, it's a lovely thing to write about. So when did you, you start writing? You said that you started before you studied it. Well, I, started, I mean, I wrote when I was quite young mainly copying pre-existing things and thinking I'd made them up. Um, (laughs) And then, um, so I guess my undergrad and kind of before that, about 17, I started actually forming poems, actually crafting something. And it was poems first? Yeah, 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 it was. The thing I was, I was, I was thinking about throughout all of that is the details. Yeah, I, and I loved the what was it, the soft mints in a glass jar. Yeah. Just, just, and everything just stands alone, very be- beautifully. Just details. These are details and drops. I suppose that has something to do with, with things remembered and flashes of memory and things like that. Um, do, do you do you start with the detail or do you add the detail in as you go? Ooh. That the list of details, the sort of chunk in the middle, mm. just um, the fish will never die. Or yeah, that all arrived as one, really. Mm. Um, and I, I didn't write it intending it to stay as a list. I was just mm. writing, I guess, sense memories of um, my nan and granddad's house. That's about mm. my nan and granddad. Um, but no, I actually this this started with the 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 fact that I had read something about grey heart matter mm-hmm. um and about the, the possibility of having memory some like, actual uh, tissue of uh, like brain memory that's not a sentence <laughs> In, um, <laughs> the possibility of having um yeah 
brain tissue, something that resembles brain tissue in our hearts, mm. this tiny part of it. Um, and the idea of hearts breaking and hearts holding on to memories and mm. um, the separation between a kind of brain memory and a heart memory. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful way in to a poem, yeah. I think, as well, because it, it could be very... You, you hear poems that, that write about the heart a lot. Yeah. And it's it it's such a fresh way of doing it. And it must have been it must have been such a gift when you you heard it sort of thing. Was there a moment where you went, Oh God, that's that's perfect? Or did it come slowly? No, I heard it um a long time before I wrote the poem. Mm-hmm. It sort of just popped back into my head. I think probably in some drunken conversation about biology, <laughs> which I am not qualified to talk about. Um so I, I probably t- tried to argue it as a, a fact. So, like, what what's the hardest thing you found as a, as a writer? What was the biggest obstacle you find on it? I think discipline, really. Mm-hmm. Not just writing when I feel like it, writing when I don't. Consistency, and which I'm still really bad at, actually. So, this is the one of the hardest things I am still dealing with. Also, in what should be private and what should be public so I do write about my family um Mm. a fair bit and I don't share all of it I don't use all of it because unless I've found the perfect way to say something and it's not going to really hurt someone or be completely conflicting with someone else's memory or someone else's experience then I'm not going to put it out into the public domain I'm not going to but I do know obviously a lot of other writers Mm. do do you ever disguise things in your poems? Do you ever have techniques of... I, I mean, I'm, don't go into detail, but do you do you find ways of accommodating the truth into fiction? Yeah, I do. Um, well, I've started doing that a lot more so with prose writing, mm-hmm. um, short stories and a uh, potential novel-esque thing oh, wow. I'm working on. Oh, well, I don't know. Tell us a bit about that. Oh, no. no. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, okay. No, it's in very, very early stages. But in that, I'm... Um, I suppose edging into surrealism a little bit in order to um, in order to write about my experience yet disguise it as the kind of boring fact and day-to-day thought process or actual experience that it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of a literal metaphor, but that's not a thing, is it? But taking metaphors and... Um, writing about them as if they are mm-hmm. fact. So could you give us an example of that? Um, <laughs> jellyfish appearing as anxiety. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I have a phobia of jellyfish. Okay. Um, and um, I was trying to write about anxiety. So mm-hmm. for this character, um, things kind of morph into jellyfish. Oh, wow. So, and that, there's that sort of threat to that as well, isn't there? There's the sort of yeah. thing and, and something very alien about it Oh, I it hate well. them so much. <laughs> yeah. It's actually making me anxious. Think <laughs> about things Don't think about ge- their movement. That's the worst oh. bit. Ooh. Oh, well, thank you yeah. for that. Uh, <laughs> I'll take that over. Share the anxiety. <laughs> you can't really, you couldn't, I don't know, could you do that in prose? Or is that something that just lends itself to poetry? Um... Well, that's what I'm sort of I'm aiming for is is to, is to do that in prose at the okay. moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually think I, I would find that hard to do in poetry the other way around, okay. surprisingly, because um, not that poetry should be used as therapy, but I do sort of think that poetry's um, 
super personal, yet for me, when I'm hearing or reading really good poetry, um, if it's accessible, if the experience that's being described or the sensation that's being described or the emotion um, is something that I can relate to, then I'm going to really engage with it. Mm. Um, And I think if I read a I'm I'm already going back on myself saying this now, saying if I read a poem about anxiety being jellyfish, like, actually, I want to read that. (laughs) Maybe I should write that. That was Mark talking to Bella Fortune, and now we're going to hear Oliver Harris reading an extract from his forthcoming novel, A Shadow Intelligence. I downloaded the file I'd been sent and pressed play. It looked like CCTV or a spy cam. Black and white, wide-angle lens, high on a wall. The room was plush, white furniture, glass coffee table. A suited man stood alone at the window, turned so that his face was obscured. No audio. There was a briefcase on the coffee table, a decanter, a heavy-looking square ashtray. The man browsed a bookcase at the back of the room, then checked his watch. Fifty seconds in, he turned, poured a drink, and he saw his face for the first time. I hit pause. Then I studied the room. Then I enlarged the image to see the face more clearly. It was me. I was clean-shaven, smart, in a suit similar to ones I owned, but not exact. I stood in a room I'd never been in. But it was my face and my physicality. I hit play, watched myself sit on the sofa, pick up cigarettes, change my mind and put them down. At one minute, 45 seconds, another man entered. He looked Central Asian, dark hair swept in a heavy fringe, holding a mobile. The man said something, locked the case, but left it lying on the coffee table. I stood up, shook his hand and we left the room together. A second later, the clip ended. The footage lasted 2 minutes 25 seconds in total. I remember most rooms, let alone most individuals I've shared them with. I'd never been in that room or met that man. I looked more closely at the shadows cast by objects, the movement of faces and hands, light reflections and skin texture. Deep fakes, they were called. Human image synthesis. Computer-generated images were being used in propaganda all the time now. Russia's internet research agency generated social media content using politicians' faces superimposed on actors' bodies. It had employed them in online influence operations, mostly domestic politics. You got some sophisticated stuff from Turkey and India, people making speeches they'd never made, etc. Otherwise, it was used for faking celebrity porn. For good CGI, you needed an archive of images to draw upon. As far as I was aware, there were very few images of me available. I watched some deepfake porn posted on Reddit, then some of the political videos, and wondered how many teams were currently producing it. How did you start writing? My dad had a very old typewriter and I thought it looked cool in my bedroom, so I'd sit at it as a teenager typing out bits from other books um, in a imitative style. Uh, yeah. 
what other books did you did you go to? Uh, well, I remember I remember as a teenager, I've been thinking about this in terms of teaching and what excites people when they're starting out writing. And I remember being into um, Kafka and Borges and even Will Self and kind of mm. a psychogeography, um, a lot of short stories. Mostly stuff that had a cool cover, you know. Yeah. I, d- I don't think I understood much of that age. The book's all the cover, basically. Yeah. Famously. Or a cool title. Yeah. Was, yeah, Sartre's Nausea, things that I hadn't, oh, yeah. didn't enjoy at all, but I just no, wanted it in my bedroom. I think I got through about eight pages of that. Yeah. I felt nauseous. <laughs> <laughs> what, what did you learn from that, do you think? Um, what did I learn from that? I, th- I think so much of being a writer is about building up the confidence, seeing yourself producing something. Um, it's a short step from that to putting together a few words of your own and, and suddenly you step back and you've got a sheet of paper that contains your writing mm. and you start, yeah, it, it's um, uh, a switch in the mind, isn't it? You think, oh, I can produce something and you build up from there. Yeah. One of the... One of the things that we've that we've talked about with some of the other guests who've come on is uh, that kind of comes up with I think everybody, uh, almost everybody certainly. It's very common that this whole thing of um, of hating writing but loving having written. Mm. Right. That the that the that maybe when you start writing, it's a pleasurable experience, and you and you explore it more because it feels nice to do it right oh this is a nice thing i think i have a talent for it and i get pleasure from doing it and therefore you do it more and then if you start to pursue it as a as a career you know you have to you know put in hard work at the coalface and and hundreds and hundreds of hours thousands of hours at work and you have to revisit things and redraft and it can be uh, infuriating and exhausting and difficult but then the the pleasure from having done it is uh, is enormous and worth it, and maybe you feel compelled to do it. Maybe people talk about it. you have to do it. You don't feel I think I don't feel right if I don't do it. Uh, is that similar to your experience? Yeah, for sure. Uh, definitely, in the long run, it needs to be something I think you feel compelled to do. Just as you say, it's it's not a comfortable or often pleasurable process. Mm. But that the sense of satisfaction of, of having done it is something that actually threads through the whole process. It's the the vision you have in your head of the finished thing that you're working towards. Um, and ideally, as as you progress, you see that coming to life in some way. So it's not an entirely deferred gratification. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you do have to get into the discipline of just uh, doing it regardless of how it feels, without hope and without despair, as I think Chekhov said. (laughs) I like it. He was was pretty smart. Um, Why crime? Um, It's an interesting question. I... I think, as I was saying, I was writing lots of short stories, got into my early 20s and was starting to want to do novel-length fiction. And immediately around that time, got drawn to crime writing, partly because I discovered some really good crime writers, Mm -hmm. partly because I was kind of living away from home, exploring the world and and wanting a a form that allowed me to explore society and how all the bits connected. And crime lends itself very well to that. But also how, it, how the bits of society are connected. Exactly, yeah. yeah. There's a, bit, a sociological element to crime fiction. Mm. Um, it's a great way of doing politics or psychology without being heavy-handed or pretentious. Yeah. Um, there's there's often a, a, a very prominent moral quality as well, isn't there? There can be. I mean, 
traditionally, there's an interesting debate sometimes as to whether crime fiction um, performs that moral function. Does it just Mm. satisfy uh, our cravings for order and to see evil punished? Mm. Or is there a more more complex appeal of, of walking on the wild side and actually seeing a world without clear distinction of good and evil that the noirish tradition that comes that comes out of the states mm. um less less the uh, poirot tradition but yeah. one in which no character and certainly not the investigator is entirely uh morally impeccable well yeah <laughs> have, uh, you, have you read any jim thompson yeah precisely yeah. um uh yeah um all, all those writers. Um, but the other thing that crime fiction gave me was, was a sense of structure, in, embarking mm. on novel-length prose. Uh, and a, a kind of, not quite a mask, but a sense that if I had a, a body on the first page and a solution on the final page, I could kind of put the pieces together in between. I didn't have to be the next, you know, Salman Rushdie or um, mm. the next great literary figure, the next Joyce or anything. Yeah. I could just deliver a satisfying mystery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that I I went through a spell of being very into Raymond Chandler. Yeah. And I think the thing that uh, I still love him. He's fantastic, obviously. What a writer. But the thing that I think the thing that really appealed to me about his voice was that he was uh, he his protagonists. Did he? What did he? Was he? Did he just write about Marlowe? I can't remember. The, all, the, all the books of his I've read are Marlowe. Yeah, I think there might be some short stories that aren't from Marlowe's point there of view. There might be. But, but what, what I think what I really, what appealed to me about Philip Marlowe was that he had this, this um, he was a, like a, a rigorously moral person. Yeah. But he didn't come across like it because he was a sarcastic, hard drinking, know it all. Yeah. But the society around him was so corrupt and, um, you know, full of people who flourished based on the suffering of others yeah and his response to that world is to is to be miserable and drunk all the time but also to confront it and confront those people yeah which i found very uh appealing yes no i mean in some ways he's quite a traditional hero isn't mm. he and we, and we root for him because he, he does have uh a moral core that that's there for all to see mm. um but I I mean, Dashiell Hammett kind of before uh, Chandler, who was himself um, a private investigator, very aware of how they could be used. You know, the investigators themselves were caught up in all sorts of corruption and mm. um, big business and, and financial interests. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, certainly for me, I'm interested in um, a world without clear good guys and bad guys yeah um and in some ways it's easy to get rid of the good guys and the bad guys you need an enemy of some sort yeah yeah, yeah. is is all your stuff contemporary set yeah it has been so far because the the thing that strikes me about i i I, ha, I don't read an awful lot of crime fiction actually but my phd thesis is looking at crime cinema right um and the thing that strikes me about the contemporary crime stuff that I've looked at is that the the nature of contemporary crime has shifted so much with technology. Um, it's there's there's a it's fragmented and it's kind of disparate and it's it's I don't know there's a there's a kind of alienating or alienated quality 
um, to the the nature of organized organized crime mm. in the way that you know if you if you move back to early twentieth century organized crime, it's all about um, fraternity and identity and the neighborhoods, um, particularly in, in American crime mm -hmm. with immigration immigration stories. And it's, there's a kind of you know if you go back and you watch Goodfellas for example, there's uh, you can see the positivity in amongst this incredibly violent world and abusive world, but there's so much community and identity and, and like respect and brotherhood. And in contemporary crime stuff, all, all of that's eroded often. And it's, it's much more about um, the, the stuff that I've, that I've seen is, is, is much more about the kind of lone people um, traversing these kind of um, empty hinterlands. Um, is that what do you think about that? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, really interesting. I mean, I guess first off, that that sense of fraternity community we get from Hollywood's portrayal of the mafia, th that in itself it must be to some extent Scorsese's creation. You know, uh, mm. Coppola's creation. Um, I don't know. To what extent uh, it's an accurate reflection of um, of the mafia of that time? They wanted to tell that that immigrant story. I'm mm -hmm. sure if they wanted to, you could find that now <laughs> in amongst you know um, yeah. the the Bulgarians and Romanians of, of London, for example. Now mm -hmm. you could shoot that like Goodfellas. Um, I suspect that's a good idea, actually. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, you can have that one. All right. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you began by talking about technology. I, I, mm. A lot of the fascinating aspects of organised crime now are technological. Mm. Um, I don't know to what extent that actually has changed the reality. I think the artistic depiction of it has just moved on from that sort of backslapping Goodfellas era. People mm. are more alert to the dark side, less interested in in mafia stories as stories of immigrant communities. Yeah. Can you tell us about uh, A Shadow Intelligence, the, the novel that that extract that you read came from? Sure. So previously I've been writing London-based police procedurals fo focusing mm. on a, a detective. But I always wanted to do something about the intelligence services and because uh, I'm interested in politics and geopolitics. I'm interested in the intelligence services. And I, as ever, you kind of read what's out there and you feel... There's a lot of good spy writing, a huge amount still focused on the Cold War and even the Second World War. Very little contemporary and very little that seems willing to confront the darkest sides of Western intelligence services in terms of their involvement in other countries, yeah. their, um, the, the murky side of it. So, I mean, I kind of started with the premise of what would James Bond be doing now? Yeah. Um, and I kind of came to the conclusion you'd probably be working for a private intelligence company being paid a huge amount by an energy company oh, to, <laughs> to secure themselves against a Russian energy company in Central Asia. I wanted something that, you know, took yeah. us away from, oh, let's defeat uh, ISIS or whatever to yeah. what's the kind of slightly more subtle, slightly more economic realities of all the espionage going on out there. A huge amount of it being done by these private companies staffed by former uh, state intelligence officers. That's fascinating, isn't um, it? But with access to resources that often MI6 wouldn't have 
What kind of resources do they have? Well, I mean, just to? in terms of because they can take money directly from uh, energy companies I won't name, mm. you, you yeah, have... Yeah, don't, don't, <laughs> don't need the um, don't need that. The level of everything from uh, hackers that, that you can buy um, to private military contractors that you can use for security. If you choose, if a company wants to conduct an operation in a particular country like Kazakhstan, where my novel's based, mm. um, they can do that. For someone working for, ultimately for the UK Foreign Office to do that, those a, they probably don't have the budget. B, there's a huge amount of political and diplomatic sensitivities. And there's always this bureaucracy. Yeah. So it's this new world of very well-funded, very streamlined, private military intelligence contractors that I wanted to explore. That is horrifying. <laughs> well, you've, you've sold me. I want to read your book now <laughs> and be terrified at the state of the world. Um, what research do you do to write something like that? Um... It's not easy. I mean, I, I travelled in Kazakhstan, which was brilliant, and met oh, people, including journalists, reporting there. I spoke to anyone I could get my hands on. I have one or two contacts who actually have a foot in defence circles Ooh. and cyber defence in particular. So that that was yeah. great. But you have to kind of open open your mind. And actually, a, a huge amount of people kind of doing a t intelligence work under slightly different headings, whether it's kind of due diligence for companies wanting to invest in the Middle East. You know, again, this this huge industry going on because there's so much money involved. Mm. A business wants to invest in Dubai. They want to know who exactly they're dealing with or, or a deal goes wrong. There's money somewhere. People want to extract this money from, mm. you know, from Iran or somewhere. Um, and there are these companies that, that do that. Um, there are lots of private companies working on the kind of, PR side for brands in the UK and Europe. Um, if if a particular, I don't know, uh, a pharmaceutical brand is worried about interest from activists, then they will hire people to keep an eye on um, online behaviour. Mm. But also, of course, perhaps if they wanted to step beyond that, who are these individuals turning up to protest outside the headquarters? The police won't do much. Mm. You turn to private um, organisations to to know your enemy yeah and it's a very grey legal area yeah I want to ask you about the deep fakes yeah. <laughs> before, we, before we wrap up um, uh, that's terrifying <laughs> yeah. tell, tell, me, tell me everything that I don't want to know about deep fakes well I mean I think you've heard the basics of them the, this, this kind of arose over the last year, 18 months, people produced footage of Obama giving a speech that he never made. Mm. Um, and it began to circulate, became fairly well acknowledged that the technology was there to do this. Mm. Um, a lot of speculation about the implications, especially as this collided with stories about Russia manipulating elections in other countries and the role of disinformation campaigns and fake news. Mm. So, I mean, it's a kind of storm waiting to happen. Um, maybe we're going to be alert enough and we're beginning to get our heads around the whole concept of fake news and having to be careful about social media. Perhaps we can kind of head this off before anything awful happens, like mm. a diplomatic incident over something that never actually happened. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, we're going to see lots of them over the next few years. Well, yeah. I mean, what, how, do you, how do you 
down the river. It's- yeah, I mean, the intelligence services have now developed, or, and private companies have developed means of assessing wh- what's real and what's not to some extent. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess you, you also need a consensus amongst democratic populations that this is bad and shouldn't happen. And I'm not sure that you get that. I think people tend to leap on things even knowing that they might not be authentic if it backs up their Well, that's precise, That's precisely what we've seen, um, that for a, an online campaign to work, you don't necessarily need people to... It doesn't need that much credibility. It just yeah. needs to circulate. Yeah. People aren't looking for truth. They're looking for something to prop up their beliefs. Yeah. Um, I mean, it also needs consensus on what's considered a reliable news source, and, and that's mm. gone out the window. So... They're going to be a challenge, but potentially not more of a challenge than other forms of fake news, but um, a visually powerful one. I need to go and watch some Disney movies. (laughs) (laughs) The the novel's out there for for people who just feel too content right now. (laughs) There's a lot of people who... There's so many people (laughs) who are just walking along, whistling along the street. What a wonderful world we live in right now. They need to have their illusions. Someone's got to wake them up. Exactly. And you're the man to do it. All right. Thanks for coming in, Ollie. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. There was there was one thing that really hit on there, which was the faked pornography as well, which was really mm. just it's just, I mean, it's all just really skin crawling. It isn't is, it? isn't it? It's just icky. Yeah. The whole, the, you see sometimes, you see these, you know, at university, so you see porn, you see these, uh, you see young people being sucked into the world behind the computer screen, mm. you know, and losing themselves and losing their health, their mental health, mm. losing all aspects of kind of a healthy life because of all that. It's just the worst aspects of humanity that you can access with a little click. And it's it's slightly terrifying, I think. Yeah, it really, it really puts shivers down your spine. Uh, a, print, a concept I love, those grey matter in the heart. That's a fascinating concept, yeah. isn't it? Let's talk about grey matter in the heart. And it's just... that It's that's, that thing that we all hear about, written about, about two people so in love that when they one of them passes the other passes mm. quite soon after and it's, mm. it's a story that we hear reoccurring reoccurring um i think the the thing i really liked about that <clears throat> the kind of the texture of of that image mm. is the uh the 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 faded damaged quality that you get from the word gray yeah you know like old meat that's yeah. worn out and Close to the end. Yeah, I, I, I got that as well. And that was sort of, you could see that echoed in the images, the fact that mm. the auburn hair dye doesn't quite, it turns the hair pink rather yeah. than auburn. Things aren't... Grey 
grey hair, pink. Yeah. Yeah. The the the, the, the there was a, something slightly faded about the thing and things about memory, all mm-hmm. things about memory and about coming to the end of things. So that was that was it was really beautifully done. Mm. Yeah, and that that sends chills down your spine in another way. Do you do you write from memory a lot? Uh, sometimes, sometimes I do. Not recently. No. Um, no. Uh, yeah. I do, <laughs> I do I do a lot. Yeah. I have done a lot, and I'm trying to move away from it more. Okay. And why, I th- why do why do you need to move away from it? Because uh, it's too personal. I've I've written an awful lot of 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 short kind of a lot of flash mm. and short fiction that is. I mean, it's more creative non-fiction a lot of it than 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 short fiction, and um, and it's not uh, it's too personal. It's hard to have perspective on it. It does produce some good work, but um, I'm not the sole owner of it. Okay. You know, if it's about other people, I'm not sure about the ethics of of releasing that into the world. Um, and, and Which is something that Bella was talking about as well. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a tricky thing because there are lots of writers and artists in general who I really like who the main feature of what I like about them is that they expose themselves. They, mm. they absolutely are honest. They're analytical. They're vulnerable. Uh, I remember reading um, Nick Hornby when I, was, when I was quite young and being really struck by uh, in Fever Pitch how he was just... With, without shame, analysing all his frailties and his yeah. difficulties and his conflicts. And I think that's, it's really key. I think when I see writers who, are, who I don't like, yeah. and who I can't connect with, it's people who are hiding something or they're not putting themselves out there. In, you know, they don't have to be writing directly or autobiographically, of course, mm. but there's no blood in it. Whatever they're writing, mm. there's no blood in it. Yeah. You know? And I, think that's, I do think that's a really important thing. And I like a lot of people who... I like a lot of writers... Who who write as a version of themselves? I really like Miranda July's short oh, fiction, for God, example. I love Miranda July. And she, she she's her character, and obviously it's a version of her. Yeah. But she created a version of her that you dip into. And I, I was a big Bukowski fan when I was younger as well. I've had complex feelings about him now. Mm. Um, but that is that is a really appealing thing. But I don't think I want to do it really. And I think I generally like more when I when I persuade myself to move away from putting my experiences down on paper and I start inventing people and situations that speak to my experiences. Mm. I think that I think it produces better work and I think I feel more comfortable about taking that stuff into the industry, you know. It's great cuz there's no right way to do it. Mm. And I I think that you've I don't know what your experiences are but that mm. you've 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 suggested that you can write about autobiographical stuff and it can be good mm. and you can write about stuff that is less so, and it can be good and that's just it just speaks to the power of the the form like writing you can almost write about anything it's all great but yeah it's all in the execution isn't it yeah yeah and I think we've been really lucky today because we've had two people who have who have executed their work superbly and mm. superbly read as well Bella's a very good reader, isn't it? Isn't she? You can oh, see God, her yeah. performance skills in there. But oh, you have that too. Yeah, I mean, how do you, oh, darling? Stop. <laughs> you, but you do. You, you. We've spoken before about how you, how you perform, how you manage yourself to to perform well, which is a really important thing and something that a lot of writers are not, are not very good at. How do you do it? Um, 
how, how, how do you get good at it? How, yeah, well, yeah. How do well, you? How do you? <clears throat> how do you? Perf- you know, Bella had that kind of slick, professional. Mm-hmm. She know she, she knows how to read a thing, right? And she knows how to do it, no matter what else she might bring into the room, how she might be feeling. She can do a good reading, and mm-hmm. I find that. Uh, I always have nerves when I do reading. Sometimes more, sometimes less. Well, are you are you nervous now talking into the the microphones? No, I feel great now. You feel, you feel fine. <laughs> no, not 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 particularly. No, no. It's, it's um, uh, it is a little. You do have to get used to. Yeah, I think you sort of start off, and I think people hear it in your voice as well. Yeah. The start of these things, I'm always a bit more higher pitched <laughs> and a bit more, and I sort of relax into it as I go through. Yeah, it just becomes a conversation. Um, I think Bella hit it on the head mm. when she was talking about the advice she'd give to writers, mm. which is go out and see performances. And and open mics are getting more and more common. And even if you can't go to an open mic, YouTube, but you can go and watch performances. And just like there's that age old adage, which is to become a better writer, you must read. Mm. So read and read. To become a better performer, you must see performers. And, and perform. Watch, and yeah, and, and perform, of course, of course, mm. and perform as well. Um, but yeah, I, you go if you want to get better at what I did was I, I looked at the Dodge Poetry Festival on, online, Poets and Players. They have a fantastic YouTube series. And you just watch people and you see the ones that you like and you go, God, what what are they doing mm. that and I can, can imitate? I do, yeah. do you find, do you <sighs> like smaller or bigger crowds? <laughs> I like all the attention. Anything, anything will do. <laughs> oh, uh, I think uh, it's 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 different. I think that with a small crowd, uh, emotions change very quickly. Mm. So if you've got a, a mm. small crowd of about fifteen people or so, yeah, um, if one person's laughing, it becomes very infectious very quickly, mm. and if everybody's a bit quiet and a bit awkward. It, it sort of stays there. That's yeah. their emotional pitch doesn't change much. Mm. And it can be, it can be very intense. Mm. Large crowds, uh, they're, they anonymous. Yeah. And, and you're sort of anonymous as well. You sort of, yeah, you I like to, that. to accommodate a large st- crowd, you have to stand on a big stage with footlights yeah. and they're usually in the dark. See, and- I love that. I'm, <clears throat> I'm very happy with a big crowd mm-hmm. up on the stage, moving around can't really see them all that well. It all passes in a blur, doesn't it? <laughs> I, I, just, it, I just get much more. I, I'm quite good, I think, at rising to an occasion. Mm-hmm. You put me in front of a, a small, a smaller room where you can hear all the reactions. From your Mark I'll, story, that wasn't really rising to the occasion. <laughs> sorry, uh, sorry. I needed a bigger crowd, all right? Oh, yeah, of course, of course. They were, that, was, that was a crowd of one. It was a one. crowd of one. Oh, and when God. he was uncomfortable, the whole crowd was oh, uncomfortable. That's true. Okay? That I, is true. I, needed, I needed a thousand people behind him laughing and cheering. That's what I needed. <laughs> he would have seen the first you liked it i loved it i thought it was hilarious all right shut up then (laughs) having a go (coughs) sorry sorry um i'm really bad too i do apologize (laughs) all right right. never mind eh? never mind what have we learned today mark what have we learned um i've i've i think that i've i've i don't read a lot of crime fiction Mm. and i want to Mm. I really want I'm to. I'm very keen to read Ollie's book. Yeah. He's, there you go. He sold me. There, there was also also a time when my voice broke. Uh, <laughs> just then. Um, <clears throat> there was also a time when I, I sort of, there's this whole thing in, in 
in poetry about page versus performance, and it's quite silly, I think. Mm. Um, and there was a time when I was very much like, "What is the thing about page versus performance?" Oh, okay. So there, there are performance poets mm. who 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 are usually spoken word poets who perform off the page, and there's a very specific style to it. And there are page poets who write. For, they're, they're they're intending their work to be read in books. It's more sort of traditional. Mm. They perform and they perform excellently as well most of the time, but they are usually performing off of a page, mm. and you kind of get this discussion of what's better, and it's a really silly thing because it's not better, and there's a, a lot we can learn from both, yeah, and integrate into each other. But there was a time that I almost sort of, I, and I think that Bella, particularly, is a is a wonderful example of a, a poet who's both performance poet, both out, uh, mm. spoken word, like her spoken word shows, but also a page poet. Well, I was going to say, you could hear <clears throat> the quality of her page mm-hmm. in her reading, I think. And Lovely I th- imagery. I think it's going to... I think what what I've taken from Ali is a want and a need to go and re- read crime, mm. which I really want to do. And I think of what I've taken from Bella is the fact that I think the whole page versus performance debate is going to become less and less important as the two become more and more similar you think that's happening i I hope so i Mm. hope that page poets are going to become more about performance you said it yourself right some writers can't perform and i think that performance poets are just going to go and do their own thing and you know sort of thing but it's going to be very hard to tell them apart when they perform i think i started this off with a uh arguably embarrassing story uh, do you have any embarrassing performance stories, say, oh. that you want to share? <clears throat> okay, so when I was... Uh, my first performance in front of any crowd mm. ever <clears throat> was I was... Uh, I was seven, and there was a, yeah. uh, a school talent show. <laughs> uh, it was really bad. You were bang up for it, weren't you? Oh, my God. Well, it was, it was compulsory. Oh, really? Everybody had to. They were like. It was one of those things where they were like, everybody has a secret talent inside, mm. and you've got to go up there and show your talent, sort mm. of thing. And it was supposed to be character building. And they told us this in the morning, and we were performing in, in the, the afternoon. afternoon. <laughs> I sort of think that they just didn't have anything planned. Yeah, they, they didn't. Sort of, yeah, yeah. Looking back, someone was off now, sick. Oh God, and I. And and there were some people, people got up and they actually had some talent. You know, there were people who mm. just went up and tap danced without tap shoes. But there was like, everybody was like, yeah, that's really. Mm. And I was terrified and I got up and I told a joke mm. and nobody laughed. <gasps> nobody laughed. Oh, no. Have you Do you remember told... the joke? No, I don't remember the joke. Oh, I just yeah. remember the deafening silence. <laughs> I remember the deafening silence. And then walking very slowly <laughs> off. The slow walk. Oh, God. I walked off and just kept walking. I just walked straight out of a fire oh, no. escape. I just, Seriously. <laughs> just straight out of a fire escape. No, you didn't. Uh, yeah. And, and just carried on walking. My face was burning. Oh, God. Oh, man. I'm I sorry st- to laugh. No, no, face. don't laugh. Please. You, you're the first person who laughed. <laughs> I need, I need and the maudlin seven-year-old oh, walking straight out the fire escape oh, of this. Were you I not couldn't... at school? Did you not have class to go back to? I don't think anybody wanted to stop <laughs> I think that the teachers really took pity on me and they just went, let uh-huh. him go. <laughs> this needs to be a scene in a French film. I think... <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, bloody hell. I still wake up in cold sweats at that night. Christ. Well, there's your laugh. There you go. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it was a long time coming. <laughs> had to wait 26 years or however long it was. There it is. 26 years. How old do you think I am? How old are you? I'm 31. That was about roughly how old I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm older. There you go. We, won't do, we don't need to talk about that. <laughs> Shall we end the show? Um, <laughs> we have to. We have yes. to hear. We have to hear a piece from Mark Pajak. Yes. Um, so, what are you going to read? I'm going to. I'm going to read uh, "Spitting Distance," um, mm. which is uh, a poem set in Derbyshire um, on the on the hill, Mamtor. All right, near Edale. And here is Mark to close the show. Spitting distance. Near Edale, I find a live rifle shell, like a gold seed in the earth. So I load it into my mouth and go on walking, the sun breathing down my neck, the head of Mamtor rising and the path falling like a braid. So this is what it's like to be a gun, Copper bleeding on the gums, the domino click in the teeth. At the blue summit, I look down with my new perspective on the warped floor of Derbyshire, to where a village pools in a valley and a chimney hangs from the sky on a white string. And I watch with hunger the red dot of a car stop at a crossroad. I suck hard on the blunt bud, drawing out its deeper flavour of powder, smoke down the barrel of my throat. And then it hits me that there's another side to this. And I lay in the warm heather, a body with a bullet in its head, staring at this sky its clouds blown open, its sudden night 